sermon this morning is entitled, Boasting in the Cross. If you can remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Today's text comes to us from Galatians chapter 6. Galatians 6, verses 13 through 14. Galatians chapter 6, verses 13 through 14. And hear God's word. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. May be seated. One way to avoid persecution in a post-Christian nation is to avoid preaching on the cross of Christ. That's what I shared with you last week, if you remember. And that's what Paul informed us of last week as he told us that one of the reasons why the Judaizers people who said you had to believe in Jesus but also be circumcised, one of the reasons why they avoided the message of justification by faith alone and Christ alone is so that they could avoid persecution from the Jews. Paul, on the other hand, not only preached the cross of Christ but also publicly embraced the persecution that came with belief in the gospel. He embraced it. In fact, one of the central points that we established last week was that every genuine follower of Christ will experience some form of persecution prior to entering heaven. Remember the question I posed to you? I asked you if whether or not it's possible, you think, to go to heaven having lived a solid Christian life without experiencing any form of persecution. And we looked at 2 Timothy 3.12, the text in which Paul informed us of these grave words, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The key words in that text are the words all and will be. The scope, therefore, is both comprehensive as it is certain. All, not some, Christians will suffer for their faith. And Christians will be, not might be, persecuted for their faith. The reason why Paul was able to write with that sort of certainty, because you might be sitting there wondering, how is Paul able to write with that sort of certainty? How does he know whether or not every Christian in this world will suffer persecution? It's first of all, not only is he divinely inspired to write scripture, but did you know that that is exactly, essentially what Jesus taught as well? See, Paul was keenly aware of spiritual realities. He knew that Christians were upon faith in the gospel, though we look the same a lot of times. When we come to faith in the gospel, new creatures are genuinely and substantively formed. It is true that sometimes we even look different. A lot of times when we come to Christ, things that we used to wear in the past, even from the way we do our hair to the way we dress, completely change. 
gone of provocative clothing and, and uh, articles of clothing uh, that seek to draw attention to ourselves. But more importantly than outward change, the reality is that when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, inwardly we are changed. There is a substantive change, and the Bible calls us literally new creations. This new creation comes with a new allegiance. An allegiance that will bring the, bring the Christian into direct warfare with the devil, his demons, and all unbelievers who according to scripture are underneath the sway of the devil. And the expectation of opposition ought to be far clearer than, say, an American soldier draped in an American flag walking through a German Nazi headquarter during the height of World War II. Of course you're going to experience opposition and animosity. In fact, something would be amiss if there wasn't any. Again, remember I said that Paul was just teaching what his master taught. Jesus said this, John 15, If the world hates you, anybody here today that is hated by the world? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you are not of the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also Keep yours. Are you greater than Christ? And none of us are. So if you're not, and we're not, then Jesus is informing you this morning to expect persecution. Why? Because you are His. You're His. You're a new creation, you have a new allegiance. You march for a new king, and you are not of this world. So persecution, though not invited, serves as a tremendous gift of assurance. As believers undergoing persecution recognize that they must be doing something right. As a Christ follower in this world, The moment you believe in Jesus Christ, and granted I will say that it progresses with time as well, but the moment that you genuinely turn to faith in Jesus Christ, this world with its lures, ambitions, desires, comforts, and limelight become dead. And this essentially is Paul's main point in today's scripture text, particularly verse 14, as he declares that the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul has essentially become a rotten corpse, the stench of death to the world, and vice versa. The world had become completely worthless to him. I want you to listen. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? Once a Pharisee of the Pharisees who studied under the world's best rabbi Paul now counted all of his world's accomplishments and accolades as trash compared to knowing Christ, particularly when it came to his past law-keeping. Listen to what he said in Philippians. 
Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Whenever I read those words, the most fascinating part of that verse are the words, in order that... I have suffered the loss of all things in order that I may gain Christ. In a strange, strange way, we in present day America actually believe that we could have the world and have Christ. Paul is saying that's not possible. See, both in that Philippian text and today's text, we see a constant theme. And the theme is that the abounding life in Christ that we all desperately thirst for begins with the death of self. You're all thirsting for Christ this morning. Even if you don't know it, you are. The Bible is saying that that abundant life, when Jesus met that woman at the well and told her, I'm going to give you water that will burst out of you so that you'll never thirst again. And she's like, give me that water. And, she, and Jesus says, I am the living water. What Christ is saying, what Paul is saying is that sort of water that you want right now, some of you desperately crave it and you know it, but you're not giving up the world. You're not giving up your personal desires. You will never live the effusive, magnificent, overflowing life that Christ has to offer unless you first die to yourself. If you think about the title of today's message, Boasting Only in the Cross, and I'm going to expound upon that later, you will see what Paul means. Let me exposit today's text. When you read verse 13, let's get Galatians up. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may Boast in your flesh. Now what does that mean? When you first initially read this text, one danger is that you come to the erroneous conclusion that Paul is teaching antinomianism, which is lawlessness. It's a type of doctrine that essentially says, because Christ has died... Let us sin as much as we want. It doesn't necessarily say go and sin intentionally, but what antinomianism does teach is that sin and the keeping of the law is at odds with the gospel of grace. Well, the keeping of the law. They would say, therefore, sin. And so when you read a text like this, the error is to think that because Paul says, not even the strictest law-keeping Jew keeps the law himself, you would then suppose that he means, then why should Gentile Christians keep the law of God? Isn't that what you think? If the Jews don't keep the law, then the thought going through someone's mind might be, then why should I keep it? And I want you to know that that is not what he's teaching there. He's not teaching antinomianism. Paul loved the law of God. In fact, in that famous Romans text, he says in Romans chapter 7, with my inward being, with all of my heart, I love the law. 
So what does he mean? Well, I think with verse 13, he's attempting to establish two things. Number one, he's attempting to establish the fact that the law exists to condemn everyone, including law-keeping Jews. It condemns everyone because not even those Jews who try to get everyone to keep the Mosaic law are able to keep the law themselves. In fact, God gave us the law to condemn us in order to point us to a Savior. Paul says he would not have even known what coveting was unless the law said, Thou shalt not covet. So when the law was given to to Moses by God, God did it for the purpose of bringing the entire world underneath a condemnation so that the world would say, We're guilty! Oh my, we're guilty! And it would set their eyes on Jesus. And second... False religion binds its adherence to the proud leadership of its leaders. I think that's what Paul is saying with that text. Because when you read that text, it says that they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. We all boast about something. We all do. And the question is, what do we boast in? In verse 13, Paul is pointing out the fact that the Judaizers who were demanding that Gentile Christians be circumcised and keep the Mosaic law, so they're saying faith in Jesus is fine, but also keep all the entire Mosaic law. And Paul says, that's a false gospel, because anytime you take Jesus faith in Christ alone, and you add works, the entire system becomes rotten. It's a false gospel. It's what you have in Roman Catholicism. It's the very reason why we had the Reformation. It was the recovery of the gospel. And it is the very reason why Paul here today says that those Jews who tried to purport this sort of gospel it's not, not only are they accursed, as it says in the text, but they themselves also do not keep the law. In fact, what he's saying here is that the law keepers were actually law breakers. Now here's an important question. If what the Judaizers wanted from the Gentile Christians was circumcision, and they were all circumcised themselves, how then were they lawbreakers? Weren't they all circumcised? Isn't that what they want? So, a circumcised Jew at this point might ask Paul, what are you talking about? I'm telling them to get circumcised, and I've been circumcised. What do you mean? I don't keep the law. And for clarity there, we would turn to Romans, where Paul does a full exposition on this. Romans 2, starting with verse 22. You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, Dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Whoa! So they're saying, Paul, what are you talking about? I've been circumcised. What are you accusing me of? And then he goes into this whole entire thing in Romans and he says, well, not really. You haven't been circumcised. What do you mean? 
I could show you physical proof. Drop down to verses 28 to 29. And Paul was saying, no, you can't. For the one is a Jew, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now what's going on there? Let me explain. Paul is essentially telling the Jews who are boasting about being circumcised and were telling everybody else to get circumcised. What he was saying was that their circumcision, if they had kept the entire law, would actually mean something. However, it doesn't mean anything And for them, he had to point out the fact that although they thought that circumcision was salvific, it was not. For you got to remember two things here. Uh, Paul was actually saying, number one, circumcision was part of God's command for ancient Israel, and therefore it had to be obeyed. If we were all Jews here today prior to the advent of Christ, in order to please God, all the males would have to be circumcised. Why? Because it's part of God's law. And second, more importantly, circumcision for the Jews was a sign that the people of, they as a people of God were God's covenant community. But Paul points out that no one, no one has ever and could ever keep God's laws perfectly then circumcision actually does nothing for the individual who depends on it for his right standing with God. You see, the Jews erroneously boasted in their circumcision and their chosen people status. Through their sins and law-breakings, they had displeased God and separated themselves from God like every other sinner on the face of this planet. But for some reason, they came to the belief that by merely being circumcised, which noted that they were part of God's chosen people, they were saved. If you talk with a lot of Jews today, they still hold to this belief. If you talk to them about a need for a Savior, they'll ask you why. I'm a Jew, I am chosen, i circumcised, I don't need a Savior, we're chosen. But Paul demolishes this notion by saying in verse 25 of Romans chapter 2 that the breakage of any single law of God effectively turns circumcision into uncircumcision. So in other words, you could be circumcised in the flesh, actually get the circumcision as a male. But by breaking the laws of God, you commit adultery, you steal, you lie. By breaking any of God's laws, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. It's another way of saying, you're not saved. You're not part of God's covenant community. You're not making it in to the promised land. For circumcision to mean anything, a person would have to actually keep the entire law perfectly, including circumcision. But because no one has, Paul then moves on and establishes something phenomenal in verses 28 to 29. Paul goes on to say that the true people of God, the true Jew, is not the one who is physically circumcised, but instead, it is the one who has been inwardly circumcised by the Holy Spirit. Jews, therefore, are those who repent and put their faith in Jesus Christ. 
as absurd as it may sound to you this morning, if you are a Christian, then you are a Jew. Huh? That's what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that the true children of Abraham, the true Jew, the person who's truly been circumcised, is not the one who goes through rituals. And we could talk about mosaic rituals like circumcision, but we could even talk about church. The true Christian is not the person who's in church today. It's not even the person who's going to come up for communion in a few minutes. You could do all that and still end up in hell in a few years. That's easy. It's easy to get circumcised. It's easy to receive a mark in the flesh. It's easy to come to church. It's easy to come up and partake of the elements of communion. It is hard, however, to truly love the Lord Jesus Christ in your heart. And what Paul is saying is, those who are truly God's covenant people, i.e. Jews, he's not talking about an ethnic term there. When he says Jews, he's talking about God's chosen people. The true chosen people of God are not those people who have gone through a form of rituals, but the true chosen people of God are those who genuinely believe in the Lord Jesus Christ in their hearts. They have been circumcised in their hearts. And that no one can see. But only you and God know. Some of you could be in church right now with uncircumcised hearts. And I want you to know that is a deadly place to be. For in a few years you will see that it will not save. As we proceed in this chapter, we will see that a genuinely circumcised heart boasts in one thing and one thing alone. That's the cross of Christ. And before you sit there and say, yes, I boast in the cross of Christ, I want you to listen to the rest of this message carefully. Let me just go on a little bit. Verse 13, continuing the exposition here. I think verse 13 is an exposure of the bankruptcy of man-made religion. Every Jew who commands obedience to the law must realize that he too is a lawbreaker in need of a savior. The law serves to condemn everyone under sin and it forces them to desperately cry out for a savior. The purpose of the law is Romans 3.19. Listen to it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. I've In my evangelism opportunities, I've met numerous people who tell me, I don't need a Savior. I don't need to repent. In fact, the presidential candidate Donald Trump said that too. I don't need to repent. I don't need forgiveness. I'm a good person. And the Bible says that God gave us the law, and one reason God gave us the law was so that every mouth may be stopped. Because in the day of judgment, when you stand before God, and His holy law comes into your face, you will recognize that you are a sinner, and you won't have anything to say. In that day, Donald Trump will not say, I don't need forgiveness. The law exists so that everyone could close their mouths and say, I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. That's the purpose of the law. So there will come a day when every self-righteous atheist, Jew, Muslim, or Hindu, will stand before Almighty God and realize that they have nothing to say. No amount of good works, not observing the five pillars, no circumcision, no Passover ritual observance, no good karma can save them in the presence of Almighty God. You have no excuses. And the law will acutely condemn them and every mouth will be stopped. They will stand like criminals 
who stand before a jury and a judge after everyone in the room has just watched video footage of them clearly committing the crime. That's what the experience is going to feel like in the day of judgment. That's the point of Romans 3.19. We're going to stand before God and we're going to go, oh my goodness. They got a clear shot of your face right there on the video. And you're just, okay, I did it. Except the consequences here, because you offended an infinitely holy God, is eternal hell. What a fearful day. What a fearful day that is. This is one of the reasons why I urge you to continually always never stop praying and evangelizing to your unsaved loved ones. Particularly those like your dear old grandma who seemed like a good person. But I'm telling you, Paul is telling you, in the day of judgment, their mouths will be stopped and they will stand guilty before a holy God deserving of hell. Don't let your senses fool you. Put your standard as high as God's. And don't ever kill and quench the zeal for evangelism. Judgment day is coming. Time is short. Now here's the other thing with man-made religion. There's a twofold danger there. It not only makes hypocrites out of its leaders, because they themselves break the law, but it also binds followers to sinfully proud leaders. Now just a little bit more on the first aspect of that. Paul, if we go back to that text in Romans, where Paul asks that question in Romans 2.22, if we could get that up there, uh, he says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. I want to say this, though he's talking to Jews and trying to show Jews how desperately they also need a Savior. Don't let anyone fool you. Jews will not go to heaven just by being born Jewish. The only way you're going to go to heaven is if you, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, you've repented and put your faith in Jesus Christ. Jews need Jesus as much as Gentiles do. Jews will not go to heaven unless they personally repent and put their faith in the same gospel that you and I believe in. They desperately need a Savior. Or else the consequence is hell for them as well. But what this text is referring to is while it is primarily referring to Jews who pride themselves in the law, I believe that it is also applicable for us as Christians. Keep this word in mind. You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Be careful that your life lines up to your message. Past week, I was at a sandwich shop. I asked the deli owner, uh, not the owner, the, the guy behind the deli counter to make me a sandwich. And uh, he started making me a sandwich and he began speaking with me. And uh, he asked me, what, I'm, what do I do for a living? And so I told him that I work at a church. And he said, what do you do working at a church? And I said, I'm a minister. And he said, oh, really? Literally at that moment, the countenance on his face changed. And uh, he had been very kind to me, uh, very friendly, piling on the meat, you know. Because uh, you know, that's why it's good to be friendly to, uh, to deli guys, I think. You want them to pile it on. So... Uh, he's almost done with my sandwich, and then we get into this part of the conversation. And, uh, and his face literally changes. And I'm thinking to myself, oh boy. First I'm thinking, I'm glad he first made my sandwich already. So. But then I also thought to myself, I wonder what's going on. So he asked me, do I know of such and such a church down the, you know, down the block somewhere? I said, no, I never heard of it. 
And he said to me, uh, well, uh, it's, a, it's a, a, a church that belongs to a certain denomination. And I said, uh, uh, oh, you know, uh, my father, who's also a pastor, was ordained from that denomination. And I shared that only because I thought that that would kind of, you know, cause a link and uh, a bond. But I was wrong. Because um, he then looks at me, he goes, oh, okay. And then uh, he says to me, um, the senior pastor at that church scammed me of $50,000. And this man is in his 70s, right? The pastor. The pastor is in his 70s, and uh, this guy's probably like 40s, 50s. He said, uh, he scammed me of $50,000. And I just was like, oh my goodness, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. And he said, yeah, I, I, the cops are, they're still investigating it right now. Um, and I've been deeply hurt. And he looked at me and he says, that's why I hate all pastors. And I looked at him and I said, but not all pastors are like that. And he kind of smiled a little bit and he said, I know, but I just don't trust the church. So obviously I spent like a good five minutes afterwards. He gave me my sandwich. Again, um, at that point I was kind of glad that he gave me my sandwich already, not because he didn't pile on less or more meat. I just didn't want him to poison me or something, but uh, <laughs> he gave me my sandwich, and, and we spent a good five minutes afterwards I, where I tried to tell him, look, you have to differentiate between Christians and Christ. Follow Christ, because if you don't follow Christ, regardless of what a pastor did to you or what another Christian did to you, the claims of Christ still remain true. And if you don't turn to Jesus, you will go to hell. So please, I plead with you, turn to Christ. And I'm so sorry that pastors like this exist, that hurt their sheep and scam their sheep. I've, hear, I've heard it too often. Please accept my apology. I'm sorry, but please turn to Christ. Do you have a Bible at home? And he said, I used to read it but not anymore. And, I, and then I told him, then who do you look to for hope? He said, music is my religion. And I said to him, please, turn to Christ. And I left, uh, and, and literally at that point, I, the two guys at the counter were looking at me like they wanted me to get out of there, so I, I, I just said thank you, and I left. And afterwards I prayed, and I prayed two Two prayers. A uh, first prayer I prayed was was for his soul, that that this man who was scammed by the church would repent and put his faith in Christ. But secondly, I also prayed for 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 myself and other Christians that I would never do that. That I recognize that as a pastor, this is a sacred trust, that I uphold the office by the power and grace of God. The personal godliness of the pastor matters. But I also realize this poignant point. I want you to understand this, and this is what I think Paul is trying to say here. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You tell people not to commit adultery, but you commit adultery yourself. The point that Paul is trying to make here is this. People have a hard time differentiating Christ and Christian. And no matter how many times I was trying to tell the man, look, there are bad pastors, but you have to recognize that there's also good pastors. And at the end of the day, it's not even about the man, it's about Christ. But for a lot of people, take this warning, listen to me carefully. For a lot of people, the only encounter of Christ they will have is you. And so if you represent Christ in a poor manner, yeah, you could tell yourself, well, I'm not perfect, and you could try to rationalize it all away, but for many people, they cannot differentiate between Christ and the Christian. 
And for many people, because they cannot differentiate, they will hate Christ because of the Christian. And so I'm asking you and I'm imploring you, do not blaspheme the name of God among the unbelievers because your message does not line up with your life. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to go paranoid and try to be perfect. Though Jesus does say that you must be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect, you should aim for that. But we're all going to fall short. And if people judge you on that, then that's, there's nothing you can do about that. But what I am saying is strive for holiness. Strive for it. Strive for it. And as you go up in, uh, in the faith... If God gives you more responsibilities, if you become a, a Sunday school teacher, if you become a small group leader, if you become a worship leader, if you become a pastor or a missionary, as the grades go up, the higher your responsibility, the greater the infraction of, of trustworthiness becomes. Because I tell you what, there are churches right now in New York City, and you know them, where the pastor has committed adultery or has taken money from the church, embezzled them, um, ran off with someone in the church, all sorts of sin on behalf of the pastor, and that has impacted the entire church. Churches are never the same after that. So the greater the responsibility that you bear within the church, the greater the weight of your sin. You have to recognize that the Christian life is not merely about you. It's impacting everybody else around you. If you walk it right, you will be salt and light. If you walk it wrong, you will be an obstacle and impediment. In fact, you will blaspheme the name of Christ because of the way you live. Strive for holiness. I want to move on a little bit. In the text... The second part, I believe, that's occurring is that there's a bondage occurring. The second thing that's occurring here is a bondage to pride leadership, proud leadership. You see, if we could get the text back up from Galatians. It says, uh, the first part, they who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. So I, I, I've spent a good amount of time explaining that already. But there's a second part to all this. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So here's an important point that I want you to note. One of the reasons why the Judaizers were preaching a false gospel was so that they could boast not only through hypocrisy, but it does two things. One, they could boast having made Jewish converts out of Galatian Christians. It's sort of like, yes, we conquered. But second, once they were inducted into their circle, they could still boast over them because now that they were inside this system, they were still foreigners and, and not true Jews. In other words, they were second-rate Jews. And so in the system they still had to pay their respects to superior Jewish leaders. Isn't that sick? You make converts so that you could lord it over them. The sick part of every man-made religion is that not only is it damning, but it always fuels the pride of its spiritual leaders. I want you to think about Muhammad, Joseph Smith, who the LDS church has just recently revealed had up to as many as 40 wives, some of them as young as 14 and even younger, and some of them even married, and he took them in. Look about sick pride. Buddha, or the Pope. Self-declaring holy men with an appearance of religiosity, demanding the respect of their followers so that they could boast in the flesh. True Christianity, on the other hand, demolishes human pride. And it causes its leaders, like Paul in verse 14, to declare that their only boast is in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is dangerous even in churches, because I've been to churches where the pastors and leaders expect others to serve them hand and foot. The heart of a pastor ought to be the heart of Jesus, who washed the feet of his disciples. 
We're called to be servants. In fact, that's what the word minister means, is one who serves. Our respect is gained through humble service, not through forced lordship. Listen to what Jesus said, Matthew 23. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man on earth your father, which, I don't understand the Roman Catholic Church, when you become a priest, you, they force you to call the man father. And Jesus explicitly says in the text, Call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. The true paradox of Christian spirituality is that the boast of our faith is a symbol of the world's scorn. You ever thought about that? Nobody boasts in the electric chair. But in verse 14, we see Paul boasting in the cross. A symbol of great shame and death during his time and even today. I said earlier, we all boast. It's all a matter of what do we boast in. Most of us boast in ourselves. Pride. We know that God hates pride. We know that God has committed Himself, literally committed Himself to the core of His being against those who are proud. The Bible says He gives grace to the humble, but He firmly resists the proud. It's one of the reasons why He gives Christians suffering. In fact, the more pride you have, expect greater suffering because God loves you too much to allow you to remain in that cesspool. Do you want more grace in your life? I do. And be humble. Be humble. Augustine saw pride as a root sin. In other words, a sin that gives birth to other species of sins. He says this about pride. He says, pride is the commencement of all sin. In other words, it's the beginning of all sin. Because it was pride which overthrew the devil. In other other words, According to Christian theology, the devil, once a good angel, fell because of pride. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to ascend to the throne of God, which is what we all do when we sin against God. And he says, from whom arose the origin of sin, and afterwards, when his malice, in other words, the devil's malice and envy pursued man, who was yet standing in his uprightness in the Garden of Eden, It subverted him in the same way in which he himself fell. In other words, Adam fell the same way God fell. Uh, Adam fell the same way the devil fell. The serpent, in fact, only sought for the door of pride whereby to enter when he said, You shall be as gods. That's all he needed to say in order to make us fall. Pride was what led to the downfall of Satan. And it is what led to the downfall of man. And it will lead to all of your downfalls as well. They often say that the three biggest temptations for men are money, power, and sex. Money, power, and sex are all rooted in pride, are they not? Let me close with this. Some of you right now are doing what you're doing because it's completely motivated by pride. What do you mean? Yeah, think about it. Even the jobs that you've chosen, for some of you, it was picked because of pride. You want it to look good. The pay, the power, the prestige. In fact, if you think about it today, one of the reasons why uh, blue-collar jobs are in the decline 
isn't it because of that? It's not merely only because of pay, because contractors make a lot of money. A lot of times, certain jobs gain ascendancy in this world for one reason, and one reason alone, because of pride and prestige. We have entire industries in America built on that. Mercedes and Lexus would mean nothing and make no profit if pride did not exist. It's the same heap of metal that takes you from point A to point B. It warms you the same exact way. The only difference is that you got a logo that sets you apart and fuels something in your dastard heart called pride. Entire institutions are built on this. And it's come to the point where we even expect it and we sort of honor it. How many bumper stickers have we seen? Proud father of a Marine. Proud father of a Harvard grad. My son is an honor roll student at such and such junior high school. It's even entered into our uh, common conversation where we say things like, I'm so proud of you. What what, What are you saying? I think I know what you're trying to say, but at the end of the day, should we be boasting in that? Until the pride of this life, the pleasures of this world, and the lures of this world become dead to you, you will never begin living the truly freeing life that is in Christ Jesus. The jobs that you are pursuing because of pride will leave you nothing but bankrupt, spiritually. You think you'll find your treasure and happiness there, you won't. It's only found in the humble humble hands of a Jewish carpenter who had nothing. Until your boast stops being about your job, your academic achievements, your children, your looks, and even your spirituality, you will never begin truly living for Christ. True life begins when you have a singular boast in life, namely the cross of your Lord Jesus Christ. When you boast only in the cross, that's also when you become dead to the pursuits of this life, cares of this life, riches of this life, pleasures of this life, and yes, even the religious praise of this life. Jesus condemned the Pharisees, who were the most religious people of His time, for one thing. Do you remember what it was? You love the praise of men more than you love the praise of God. Some of you could be even pursuing religion because of pride. What the amazing thing about all this is that when we die and stand before God in a few years, think about this, when you stand before God in a few years, your boast better be the cross and nothing else. It has to be about one thing, brothers and sisters. It has to be about Jesus who loved you and died for you. And that's when you truly begin living. Remember what Paul said, I gave all of this up in order that I may gain Christ. What do you mean, Paul? That's his way of saying you can't have both. You can't, you can't have both. Some of you are not there yet. And I understand that some of this is progressive. But please battle for it. You've made a profession of faith, but in your heart, your boast is still not fully in the cross of Christ. Now, what do we boast about? Oftentimes, we boast about that which brings us the most delight. Lovers boast about their significant others. That's why Facebook posts of lovers are some of the most... uh, don't, all, all it is is about their significant others going up every other day. Avid readers boast about their favorite authors. Aspiring athletes boast about their favorite teams and athletes to a point where people get so rabid about their fanhood 
that you have to tell them, relax, they don't even know you exist, okay? The Yankees don't know you exist. Parents boast about their children. We often boast about that which brings us the most delight. When you look at your life, do you boast often of Christ because Christ brings you the most delight? What do you boast about to your friends who are on Facebook? Is it always about food, family, fun? Favorite TV show? Or is it Christ? What is your true motivation for waking up tomorrow? When you go to work tomorrow, what's your true motivation for waking up, interacting with your friends, going to the gym, gym, meeting somebody at a cafe for a meal? And we're going to talk more about this in your small groups later. But what's your motivation behind any of that? And as you talk about it in your small groups, I want you to have an unbiased look at your life and examine it. Is your boast solely in the cross? And be ready to receive truth. Because that's the only way we'll grow in our sanctification. This is not foreign to the New Testament. Luke chapter 8, Jesus gives us perhaps one of the most famous parables He ever gave about the four different types of soil representing four different types of people. Listen to His explanation of each. Luke chapter 8, verses 13 through 15. And the ones on the rock, he talks about the path, but I'm not even going to talk about the people on the path because they, they never get anywhere from the outset. The, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with great joy. And these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. Time of difficulty as what we're seeing in America today. And as for them that fell among the thorns, listen to me here, America, they are those who hear, but they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the word, hold fast to it, and in a good and honest heart, they bear fruit with patience. A good and honest heart toward God. You know what the situation is in America. I think because of the passage of gay marriage last year, Christians in America will see, without a doubt, fresh attacks in new, unseen ways. And it's not only about standing for the gospel. When you begin to stand against, for example, homosexuality or abortion, you will begin to lose friends. You will begin to lose job opportunities. And some of you might even go to prison. But know this with certainty. The devil will seek to destroy you either through persecution or through the cares, riches, and pleasures of this life. He could destroy you through horrible terrorism or through hours of television. Think about that. Both could make you stray from the road to eternal life. Both will lead you to waste your life. My job as your pastor is to urge you consistently each week not to fall for either. Last week, I urged you to stand strong under persecution. This week, I urge you to boast in the cross alone and not fall for the pleasures of this life. Don't fall for man-made religion as the Pharisees. But don't fall for the pleasures of this life as you saw Herod dancing and drinking, beheading those who are righteous. This life is short. God will call into account. For those of you who are foodies, Paul has an apt word. The kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking, Paul says. 
boast in Christ. And do not allow the cares of this world to choke the good gospel seed that's within your heart. This week is about starting fresh because Sunday is the first day of the week. But you and I know that last week is gone forever. It's gone. Did you boast only in the gospel of Christ last week? Was there a genuine Christ-centeredness to everything you did last week? Or did the cares of this world choke Christ out of your life as you sought to boast yourself in your academic performance, in your job performance, money-making abilities, and as, a, as ridiculous as it sounds, in your video game scores? Family cohesion. And perhaps even about the amount of time you spent in your Bible. Paul showed us today there, there are those who even seek to boast in religion. I'd like to urge you that there's only one thing, one thing you ought to be boasting in in life. And that is the cross of Christ. Every other boast is the sin of pride. And as Augustine said, that sin will kill with a vengeance. Every opportunity you get to be humble, take it. Every opportunity you get to boast Christ and say, He must increase, I must decrease, take it. Every opportunity you have to turn off that television set and go into your closet to pray and read your word, take it. Be proactive about what enters your mind and your ears. The shows that you watch and the music that you hear. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, the wallet spends. And out of the abundance of your heart, time is spent. Did you boast in the cross? Paul says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to anyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There's nothing more powerful than this. Let me ask you something. Were you ashamed of the gospel this past week? You might say, no, I wasn't. But that might be because you never shared it. Did you evangelize? Did you center your life about around this one gospel? Paul didn't just say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, as in, whenever someone asks me, I'll, I'll gladly share Jesus with them. Paul, when he said in Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, that meant, I am centering every fiber of my being around this message, around this Jesus, and I will die for Him. And you will see, As we close this book in a few weeks, Paul will say, I bear on my body the marks of Christ. That is what it means to not be ashamed of the gospel. Some of you turn red when Jesus is brought up in public. And Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of you when I return with my angels. There is a singular boast. It is the gospel. And what is the gospel? It is the message that saves. I'm not ashamed. It's a message that declares there is a holy God that will judge you and all of you know that this God exists, whether you are a Christian or not. Romans 1 tells us that we're all without excuse. But this God, because He is holy, righteous, and just, though He loves you, must send all sinners to hell. The good news is that God sent His only Son, Jesus, who was fully God and fully man. He lived a sinless life and He died on the cross for your sins. He absorbed the wrath of God in His own flesh. The wrath that you and I deserved. And after dying on the cross for our sins, three days later, He historically resurrected. 
that if you would sincerely hate and forsake your life of self-ambition, your sins, if you would repent from your sins and turn and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord God and Savior, you will have eternal life. That's the gospel. May we never be ashamed of that gospel because on the day that we stand before Holy God, we will cling to that gospel and say, God, I deserve hell. I don't deserve anything that you're about to give me. But I cling to Christ and His precious blood. I boast only in the cross. That's a singular boast. And that sort of boasting begins today, right now. So brothers and sisters, I urge you, daily believe and proclaim the gospel. Daily boast in the cross. Let's pray.